Let's open our Bibles again to that text, Isaiah chapter 46. Through Isaiah, of course, God predicted that the people of Israel, the people of Judah, would be carried away into captivity in a far-off land called Babylon. And there those people would be surrounded. They would be immersed in a culture of idolatry. And part of the Lord's prophecy to these people, even many, many years before that happened, was to prepare them for that kind of place. To prepare God's people to live in a culture that gave allegiance, worship, and reverence to something other than the true God. Now, do you think that would be a practical passage for us? Do we not live in a society, in a culture that moves us, tempts us, pushes us to worship, to give allegiance to something other than God and His truth? The people of Judah would be surrounded by this kind of a culture. Many of them would enter into Babylon itself through what was called the Ishtar Gate. It was a marvel in the ancient world. In fact, it was one of the seven original wonders of the ancient world. The thing was 100 feet wide and 50 feet tall. It was covered with blue uh, glazed tiles that sparkled in the sun with flecks of gold in it. And across the front of this magnificent blue gate. I mean, you think of all of the colors that are in the natural world. Blue just sort of stands out as something you don't see every day, right? And so imagine that thing. And if you can go, you can go home and look up pictures of it on, online later on. They've made represent, uh, recreations of it in a number of places in the world. But as they entered into this gate, there would have been all across the front of this gate the, the images of, of lions and bulls and dragons and these images were in what was called bas-relief, which is kind of where the images sort of stand out from the wall as if they're coming to life, uh, as if the, the, the gods themselves are coming out from the walls to receive the worship and the adoration of the people. And uh, you would go through this gate and into a huge antechamber whose beams and roof were of the finest cedar. And there was a pathway leading up to this great entrance to the city that was like almost nine football fields long, this great passageway. And along there, of course, you see all of these images. The image of the lion, the image of Ishtar, the goddess Ishtar, which, who was the god of love and war and sex and fertility. You would see the bull, which is the god Hadad, who was the god of the weather, who was, of course, was very important in an agricultural society. And then there was the dragon or the serpent, which was the representation of what was really considered to be the father of the gods, Marduk, or whose other name was Bel, B-E-L, which is uh, made reference to right here in the first verse of our text. Bel, the father of the gods, who was also the patron god the namesake god of the people of Babylon, their city. He was represented there, and uh, as I said, is referenced here in the first verse, along with his son Nebo. Nebo, the god of writing and of knowledge and wisdom. 
And so these people would march into the city, would be marched into the city along this amazing corridor and up to this magnificent gate. And on the ground, the very feet underneath them, there, there were paved stones there of red and gold. And on each of those gold pavers was imprinted this description, to the glory of Marduk. And so as God's people were led into this new strange place, Every step they took underneath their feet was to the glory of Marduk, to the glory of Marduk, to the glory of Marduk. And along that same passageway, that processional way, at certain times of the year, the new year, there would be thousands and thousands of worshipers of those gods lined up shouting and praising the glory of their gods, along with horns and trumpets, and harps, and bagpipes, and all of these ancient instruments playing. Can you just imagine all of this sound, and all of this imagery, and all of the might of the world's greatest empire upheld by, supposedly by these gods, these mighty beings. And it was in that world that the people of Judah would find themselves. And everything around them would be immersed in the culture of the gods. The food that they ate would have been offered to the gods. The the calendar would have been punctuated by various religious festivals to these pagan deities. And even, even their names, their new identity, would be marked by these false gods. You remember that Daniel was given a new name, right? Bel Teshazar, right? Indicating the protection of the god Bel or Marduk. Or like his friend Abednego, the servant of Nebo, who is also mentioned here. And of course, in our world today, a lot of the world bows down to statues and prays to images lays out offerings in front of them. And while it seems foreign and far away to us, there are literally millions and billions of people in the world who do just this. Now, for us, I think it becomes a little more challenging because when we first read a text like this where the Lord is addressing idolatry, there's often a bit of a disconnect or at least a struggle in terms of how to really how this really applies to us, we're tempted perhaps to think that it's just a little bit irrelevant and to kind of move quickly on to a, another text that seems more immediately relevant. And so I want to take a moment to think about the application of a text like this and to, to sort of ransack the scriptures for a moment and think about what the scripture itself tells us in order to help us to think about the significance of idolatry, even even for us. And so let me do that by making four statements. The first is this, that idols and the false gods that they represent are nothing in themselves, but they are inhabited by demonic spirits. The worship of those false gods is received by real spiritual beings. The scripture tells us this in a number of places. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses spoke to the people of Israel 
who had turned, you remember, very quickly after leaving Egypt, they had turned back to some of the gods of the Egyptians in the wilderness. And he says to them in verse 17, they stirred God to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. And look at the next verse. And they sacrificed to what? They sacrificed to demons that were no gods and to gods that they had never known, to new gods that they had come, uh, that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you and you forgot the God who gave you birth. So when those people were offering their sacrifices and giving praise in front of these statues, the Bible says it was being received by demons, their sacrifices. And it didn't stop once they entered the promised land either. In Psalm 106, the psalmist reflects that they did not destroy the peoples of Canaan. They did not destroy the people like God instructed them, as God had commanded them. But instead, verse 35, they mixed with the nations and learned to do as these pagan nations did. And that is always the danger for us. When we live in the midst of a pagan, godless culture, the danger is always going to be for us to almost unmindfully embrace parts of that culture that begin to really reshape our thinking about who God is. And it will do that. So these people, rather than putting those nations out of the land and and, and they, instead they mixed with them, and verse 36, and they served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to whom? To demons. Remember the god Moloch? And they would literally take their children and they would place them into the outstretched arms of this statue as a sacrifice to the gods. The Bible says they were actually offering them to demons. Paul makes the same point in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 19. In this whole discussion about food that was offered to idols and whether how Christians ought to be related to that, he says, what do I imply then? That food that is offered to idols is anything, that it, it somehow inherently taints the food? Or that an idol itself is anything? Is that what I'm implying? And his answer is no. I'm not implying that the idol itself is anything, but he says, I do imply that what pagans sacrifice to their idols, they actually offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So when these people were bowing and praying and making sacrifices of food and other things to these images, this was not innocuous. This was, in fact, demonically inspired and received. So that's the first thing to keep in mind. Now, that becomes then a bridge because we don't see people around us too often making sacrifices to images and idols in our culture. But we do know, take note of this, that secondly, demons also inhabit not only those carved images and those paintings on the walls of ancient Eastern um, monasteries. They, 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 they not only inhabit those things receiving the praise of those people, but they also inhabit false religion, which is another form of idolatry. Because the God of that religion is not the true God. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, 
1 Timothy 4, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to, here's what he says, to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared and here's some of their false teaching. They forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who know the truth and believe it. So there were false teachers that were coming in to teach that there's an avenue of a way to be right with God that was not what God ordained. And that false teaching was inspired by demons, Paul says. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he again speaks of false religion in this case, particularly about false apostles. And he says these men, these false apostles, are deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, he says, because even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. These men who were proclaiming a false gospel, false apostles, laying a false foundation, these men, he says, were servants of Satan himself. And Satan disguises himself as an angel of light in terms of these false religions. And by the way, that term angel of light is actually the very term that was used by Joseph Smith, the founder of the Latter-day Saints, to describe the angel Moroni who supposedly led him to the tablets from which were translated the Book of Mormon. Muhammad claimed, too, that his religion came to him from Allah through the angel Gabriel. And while you find, wherever you find, a religion that does not portray God as he truly is, you can be sure of this, that there is a demonic power behind it. The demons are the inspiration of the false religions of the world. And sometimes that idolatry is not even explicitly religious. Sometimes modern idolatry is not even religious, as most people think of a religion, but it is certainly a particular kind of worldview, we would say a kind of philosophy. And the Bible teaches, thirdly, that vain worldly philosophies are likewise inspired by demons as a kind of modern form of idolatry. Paul says this in Colossians chapter 2, verse number 8. And I know I'm giving you a lot of Scripture. I'm just trying to lay the groundwork here for thinking about the significance of a passage like this. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, and this is worldly philosophy because he goes on to combine it with empty or vain deceit, deceitful, worldly, empty, vain philosophies, that are according to human tradition. On the one hand, these are philosophies of human origin. But secondly, he says, they are according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. There are spirits behind this kind of worldly philosophy. And so those philosophies, those godless or twisted unbiblical philosophies that are so prevalent in our world today, those become a kind of idol where people worship and serve a demonic power. The naturalistic philosophies of evolution, 
the philosophy of the LGBTQ plus movement, the philosophy of anti-life, abortion, and euthanasia. All of these worldly, vain philosophies are, in fact, modern idols. And the Bible says they come about from human origin, but they also have a satanic origin. And that is a way in which idols are alive and well in our world today. But I think idolatry is even more pervasive than that. Because the Bible says then, fourthly, that covetousness and other sins are a kind of idolatry inspired by the devil. Two verses on this. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. The Bible says, Put to death what is earthly in you. What? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is what? Which is idolatry. All of these things where you are putting some desire in front of God, in the place of God, are a kind of covetousness that is idolatry. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, where after he had revealed that it was God's will for him to go and suffer and to die, Peter takes him aside and begins to really rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus, and Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, what? Satan, right? So there again is a demonic, satanic inspiration behind this rejection of the word of God Jesus goes on to say to him, you are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You're doing not what, not what God has revealed, but what makes sense in human terms. No, Lord, let this never happen to you. You're the, you're the son of God. This must not take place. That makes sense, right? We would all be sort of forgiven in a way by one another for thinking that. Lord, don't let that happen. But this was the will of God, and it was revealed from heaven that this was God's will. And so any time we lean on our own natural thinking as the standard of what seems to feel right, to make sense, then we are in danger of becoming idolaters, of worshiping and serving something other than the one true and living God. Now, the physical idols of the world, the crafted idols that are all around in many parts of the world and were there in the ancient world, were artistic reflections, an attempt to sort of capture in an artistic, tangible fashion the very things that people really valued, the things that they esteemed or the things that they feared, the things that they depended on most in their heart. And this is why you had gods and goddesses for beauty and for sex and fertility, both human fertility and fertility of the land. This is why you had gods of nationalism. This is why you had gods of war and work and money and arts, because those are all the kinds of things that people really set their hearts on. And really, ultimately, idolatry is an issue of the heart. It is an issue of the heart. And when these people finally did end up in Babylon, God sent them another prophet by the name of Ezekiel. 
And Ezekiel was given a message by God, a message of judgment against Israel's elders, against their leaders. And that message was, these men have set up idols in their hearts. Because that's where idols always originate. The idols of the ancient world were a visible way to express the values of the heart. What people were looking to, depending on, relying in, hoping in. What they feared, what they loved. And so our temptation to idolatry can't be measured in terms of how many statues are in our houses. They're going to have to be measured much more carefully by the examination of our own hearts. That's what we're called to do here this morning, is to let our hearts be opened up to the scrutiny of the Holy Spirit, that we would be willing to let Him identify to us those areas where we have been tempted by and even fallen into a real idolatry. Idolatry is my heart giving to anything else what ought to only be given to God. The worship, the allegiance, the trust, the dependence that belongs to Him alone. To say it another way, an idol is anything that you're willing to sacrifice everything else for. Because, of course, that's what you do with an idol, right? You bring sacrifices to it. Lay them down before that altar. Your idol is what you're willing to sacrifice everything else for. Or to use the language of this text, an idol is whatever it is that you rely on. Whatever it is that you lean on, that you trust to uphold you, to carry you, to be your support in life. That's an idol. And I want you to look for that. All right? Don't take my word for it. You should never do that in a sermon. You know, look for this as we read this text in these first four verses. There's a real contrast here. You look for that contrast and the kind of terminology that's used to describe the relationship that people have with idols on the one hand or with the Lord God on the other. Verse 1, Bel, Marduk, bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. All right, so here are the idols that were in the temples of Bel and, and Marduk, and, and they are being loaded up onto these pack animals and being carried out of the temples. They are loaded on beasts and livestock. The, verse 1, these things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop. They bow down together. They cannot save the burden. They can't deliver these Babylonians from their own burden. But they themselves go into captivity. In other words, the Lord through Isaiah is foreseeing a day in which the Babylonian conquerors will be conquered themselves. And the gods who were once set up as the conquering gods of the people of Judah will themselves be loaded up onto pack animals and gotten out of town quick before the Persians get in, before everything is lost. 
Their own gods were unable to lift their burden from them. These idols themselves were actually a burden to them, weighing their animals down, slowing their progress to try to escape the invading army. That's what Isaiah foresees. In the end, these idols will weigh them down. And that's what false religions do. That's what the philosophies of the world will do. They weigh people down. They put a burden on them that will keep them from finding their salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even good things, in the end, that are made into idols can become burdens for people. Picture a middle-aged couple who has saved and worked and dreamed their whole life. They've made it their ambition to get their dream property out in the country with some land, some acreage, and an outbuilding, and a garden, and and room to roam. And they've sacrificed everything for such a place. And they finally obtain it. And within a few years, perhaps their health changes, and they begin to say to themselves, you know, this place is too big. This place is so hard to keep up. This place is becoming a real burden. And they begin to wish like anything that they could be out from under this thing. And they pray to God, Lord, deliver us. Help us to be able to sell this thing, right? I'm not saying that everybody that wants to move to the country is a, an idolater. But I am saying that those things that we think are going to be the biggest thing in the world when we finally get them, if that's the way we think about them, In the end, they just become a burden on our shoulders because we have put them in the place that only God should have. The contrast now with the idols is in verse 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel. And that is described here in these verses. The house of Israel, the house of Jacob, how are they described? They are described as those who have been what? Born by me before your birth and carried from the womb even to your old age. I am he and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear and I will carry and I will save. Do you see the contrast? The words that are being contrasted in these two verses, verses 1 and 2 and then verses 3 and 4, right? In verses 1 and 2, you are going to have to carry your idols out of the city. They are going to be a burden who should be carrying you. But in verses 3 and 4, I am the God who upholds, who carries, who bears, who sustains my people from beginning all the way to the end. And, And he's warning them, don't become idolatrous like the nations in which you are going to captivity because those idols cannot do for you what I can do for you. Money cannot bring you satisfaction in your soul. It can't. You can't get enough to finally say, oh, my soul is at rest. I am at peace no matter what. It won't happen. Food cannot Solve your problems. Indulging, giving yourself, escaping from all that you face. It won't happen. Sex cannot create real communion 
No other friend will stick closer than a brother. No other relationship will be able to save you from the judgment of God upon your own sin. No amount of exercise or health is going to stop you from decaying and ultimately dying. And your stocks, your funds, all your careful savings are not going to help you in any ultimate way. In a financial meltdown, nothing will be able to sustain you but God Himself. But we so often do rely on things. We, we think that things, other things are going to somehow carry us through. That they'll help us when we are burdened down. That money in the bank, those stocks, our carefulness in planning and saving, somehow that'll help us. You know, one of our financial accounts Part of the password, I'm only going to tell you part of it because I don't want you to hack into my bank account, but part of the password for that financial account is Helper Lord. Intentionally because of the temptation of my heart to think that I'm going to be okay just because I've been careful and tried to save. And I want to remind myself every time I log into that thing that the money cannot save me, that it cannot carry me from old, from my youth to old age, that all of my plans and my hopes must rest in the Lord God alone, the helper of His people. You know, your God is whatever you look to to carry you, to bear you up, to uphold you when you are burdened. That's your God. What do you run to? What? I mean, really, we ought to, we ought to let the Lord sort of probe us about this. What is it that we run to most quickly when we feel stressed. When we feel under pressure. Maybe it's the stress of expectations. Maybe it's the stress of boredom. But whatever it is, when we are pressed, what is it that we run to for support, for help, to uphold us, to sustain us? Isn't that the language of this text? Right? Am I, am I not... I mean, I'm, I'm, we're seeing what is it the Lord is saying. What is it that you look to to hold you, to carry you, to support you? Martin Luther said, whatever your heart clings to and relies on, that is properly your God. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, to trust anything more than God is to make it a God. Matthew Henry said, pride is a, makes a God of yourself. And covetousness makes a god of money. Sensuality makes a god of the belly. Whatever is esteemed or feared, loved, served, delighted in, or depended on, more than God, that we in effect make a god of. What is it that we depend on? What really is our soul resting on? What is it for you? I really think about this. What God, small g God, out there tempts you most? If I were to ask you right now, could you identify that? Could you identify one or two or three ways where your heart is inclined to rely on something other than God and His true revelation about Himself? Where your mind is tempted to fall into the philosophies of the world? Or your heart is tempted to take hope in some thing or some situation or some relationship or whatever it is. 
that really that's where your anchor is. If, as long as that's okay, you feel like everything else will be all right. What is it if, what is it that if you don't get it, or if you lost it, would make you angry at God? What is it that you look to to carry you when life is hard? And listen, brethren, the Lord says to His people, it is I. I carry my people. I bore them in the womb and I will carry them. I will sustain them. I will uphold them until their hairs are all gray or gone. (laughs) That was my addition, but I think it's in the text somewhere. When their hair is gray, the Lord says from beginning to end, I uphold my people. Listen to you, me. The, the Lord is speaking through this text to our hearts today, saying to you, listen, I will uphold you when you fall. When all else fails, I will uphold you. Do you not know that it is I who created you? I brought you forth by the word of my power as a kind of First fruits of my creation, I brought you forth. I carried you when you would be too weak to go on. I upheld you when you would have fallen away. I preserved you and took you in my arms when you had no strength in yourself. I did this. I have looked out for you. The reason that you're here today, the reason that you're sitting here, the reason that you're hearing my word, the reason that your heart is saying amen is that it is I who brought you to this place. Oh, don't doubt me now. The Lord would say to you, listen, friend, look back, my son. Look back, my daughter, on how I have carried you all this way. Have I not? And so when you look forward to the ages, the age to come, the days to come in your life and the rest of your life until you're old and gray, look forward knowing that I'm the same God who carries you. Why do you look to other things? Why do you depend on other things? Why do you anchor your soul in something other than me? I am God and God alone. You hear the Lord speaking to you? Even to your old age, I am He. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made you. I will bear you. I will carry you. I will save you, the Lord says. Trust me. What I began, I will finish. I have not forsaken my people. They are thousands of miles from their home and surrounded by ungodliness and unbelief and false deities. I am upholding my people just like I always have. So don't let your heart rest in anything else. There's a real contrast here between verses 1 and 2, the idols who themselves have to be carried out of the city and the one true God who carries His people who alone bears their burden and will save them. And so stark is the contrast, actually, that verses 5 and following say that there is nothing comparable, nothing comparable to God at all. In all of the pantheon of the Babylonians and all of the gods of the nations around them, there's nothing in all of those powers and beings that even compares to God. And here's the way he says it, verse 5. To whom, are you with me? To whom then will you what? Will you liken me? And make me equal and compare me that we may be alike. Right? You see here? There is nothing comparable. And of course, the reason he has to ask that question in the first place is that there are things 
there are temptations to think about some things uh, in a way that sort of compares to God. And here's what I mean, because there are some things that do give some measure of relief when you're weary, right? There are things that do make you happy. There are things that put you in awe. But not one of them is an independent helper of of any of us. It can do nothing by itself. Every one of those things that we look to is a kind gift. And the giver behind it is the one true and living God. Those things are impotent themselves to do anything for us. They're avenues by which God upholds and supports and sustains and provides relief and help and happiness and encouragement. But they are not the thing himself, the, 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 the Savior himself. And look, this is where he's going. To whom will you liken equal, compare me, that we may be alike. Verse 6, those who lavish gold from their purse. Right? Think about these people who are making idols. And they pay out all of this gold to, to be formed into an idol. They weigh out the silver and the scales and they hire the goldsmith and he makes it into a god. And they fall down and they worship that god. Remember, I said an idol is something that you make sacrifices for. The thing that you're willing to sacrifice everything else so that one thing is not touched. And honestly, you look around, you'll see people literally doing this. They're willing to sacrifice things that would otherwise be very precious to them. Sometimes even their own relationships, their family, so that the real thing that's a God for them is, is not touched. And, and so we make these sacrifices, we spend money on these idols, we spend time on these idols. People spend sometimes the best years of their life giving themselves to these idols. They take out their wallet and they empty it in order to make this gold statue. And he goes on and he says, verse 7, they lift it to their shoulders and they carry it and they set it in its place. Seems to me this must have in mind, Isaiah the Lord must have had in mind these processions of these idols, these yearly processions where the idols were carried up this processional way and set into their temples with great fanfare. He says, you carry these idols, you bring them, you set them in their place, and what do they do? What do they do? They stand there. They just stand there. They cannot move from their place. In other words, these things don't have any independent Ability in themselves to do for you, to uphold, to sustain, to bear your burden? If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from trouble. The ultimate futility of idols is that every created thing is dependent. It's dependent on the person to carry it and to set it in its place and to make sure it doesn't wobble. It's dependent. In fact, that's really a good definition of idolatry, isn't it? One dependent thing depending on another dependent thing. Is your dearest idol in any way comparable to the true and living God? The Lord says in verse 8, Remember this. Remember this. And stand firm and recall it to mind, you transgressors. For that's what idolatry is. Remember what? Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. 
Well, in what way is he unique? In what way is he incomparable? Verse 10, he is the God alone who declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things not yet done. He alone declared all of history ahead of time. This is God. He is not dependent. He is the author of this history. And further, he goes on to say, my counsel shall stand. My determinations will stand and I will accomplish what? Can you say it? I will accomplish all my purpose. This is the God who exists. This is why he is incomparable. No other thing in all of creation, no other person, no other um, being of any kind can say this, that I bring about all I have counseled and I accomplish all I purpose. He is not dependent. He is the author of all that is. And he does whatever he wills and no other being can say that. And one example of his doing what he wills and speaking ahead of time what he will do is verse 11 He says, I call a bird of prey, as it were, uses the image there. I call a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. And of course, he's called a bird of prey because he's going to come and swoop down on Babylon. And that, of course, is Cyrus and the Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire, who will overthrow the Babylonians. I did this, the Lord says. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. And of course, looking back from our perspective, we can say, and he literally did. He did just exactly that. Just like we read in the prophecy, sure enough, history books tell us that's exactly what happened. All other gods, so-called gods, are dependent things. You have to work to create them. You have to work to sustain those gods. And after a while, do you know what? In some parts of the world, they have to go clean up their gods. They literally go to the walls where their paintings are and the statues that have gotten dirty over time and they have to take their statue down and they have to wash it and they have to clean it and they have to put it back up. They have to clean up those frescoes on the wall. They have to refurbish their gods. All other gods everywhere are dependent things, part of this dependent world that's created by God, but the Lord alone is in control of all things, bringing about Every purpose he has, every part of his good pleasure for the benefit of his people. That is why that God has none else to compare. He is, in a, he is categorically different from anything else on which you might be tempted to rely. And he will bring about all his good purposes for his people. Verse 12, he says to them, Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. And of course, that's every one of us in our natural idolatrous state. Listen to me, he says. Verse 13, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. You see what he's saying to these people? Judah's deliverance will not be because of her own, what? Her own righteousness. You are far from righteousness. So what will I do? I will bring near my own righteousness to you. You don't have any of yourself. 
I will bring my righteousness. I will bring my salvation. They had no righteousness in themselves, and neither do you, and neither do I. Our hearts are perpetual factories of idols. Our hearts are full of unrighteousness by nature, but in our in the amazing grace of the one true and living God, He brings salvation to us, even, yes, people like us who are devoid of any righteousness of our own. He brings His own to bear. He brings salvation for Himself, for His people. Not because of what they deserve, but because of His own goodness and kindness, because of His choice of them in His own mercy and grace. He brings salvation to those people. He will deliver them for His own name's sake, by His own righteousness. And He says to you and I, listen, this is what I do. I will do. I bear your burdens. I bore your burdens to the cross. I bore them to Calvary. All your sin on my shoulders, all your false gods that weighed you down so that you could not escape the judgment that was about to fall on you, I took them on me. And when the wrath of Almighty God came down upon all of that false, idolatrous worship, I took it. And now I carry you. I bore your burden and I bear you. I carry you in my arms from beginning to end. I brought you, I made you, I brought you into existence by the word of truth and I will keep you all the way to the end. This is the grace of God to these people. This is the wonder of who God is. And the Lord says to His people, so you will be saved because I am the God who brings my own salvation, who brings my own righteousness. And seeing that God, seeing that God on display puts the lie to all other false deities, all other things on which we'd be, we'd be tempted to rely. And I know I've quoted this before, even in this series, but it is so worth repeating. Hast thou heard Him, seen Him, known Him? Is not thine a captured heart? Chief among ten thousand own Him. Joyful, choose the better part. Captivated by His beauty, worthy tribute, haste to bring. Let His peerless worth constrain thee. Crown Him now unrivaled King. Idols, once they charmed thee, won thee. Lovely things of time and sense. Gilded thus, does sin disarm thee. Honeyed, lest thou turn thee hence. What has stripped the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth? Not a sense of right or duty, but the sight of peerless worth. Not the crushing of those idols with its bitter void and smart, but the beaming of his beauty, the unveiling of his heart. Tis that look that melted. Peter, tis that face that Stephen saw, tis that heart that wept with Mary, can alone from idols draw, draw and win and fill completely till my cup o'erflow the brim. What have we to do with idols who have companied with him? 
Friends, what have we to do with idols who have companied with him? Would you pray with me? Thank you, Lord, for opening our eyes. See you clearly today. Thank you for this word in Jesus' name.